If you're ready to elevate your level of care and professional satisfaction, register today for the trusted DPC event that can help get you where you want to go. With three physician-led tracks focusing on starting a DPC practice, growing a DPC practice, and clinical expertise within a DPC practice, the Direct Primary Care Summit has content for anyone no matter where you are in your DPC journey. The DPC Summit is happening June 20th to 23rd in Dallas, Texas. Learn more and register today at dpcsummit.org. Direct primary care is an innovative alternative path to insurance-driven health care. Typically, patients pay their doctor a low monthly membership and, in return, build a lasting relationship with their doctor and have their doctor available at their fingertips. Dr. Singh earned her medical degree at Turo University and completed residency through UC San Francisco. She received dedicated training addressing the needs of college student and young adult populations and specializes in mood disorders like depression and bipolar disorder, anxiety disorders, as well as cultural and identity issues. Dr. Singh draws from a wide range of treatment modalities, including psychopharmacology, talk therapy, psychoeducation, and wellness. She opened up her practice in July of 2020. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Jasmine. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be here and chat with you today. I wanted to ask, uh, with you opening your practice just this past July, how did you learn about direct care? So I... um always envisioned having my own private practice. And I, you know, I didn't know what that meant exactly, but I knew that I wanted control over the kind of care I was providing, my schedule. And I, you know, then it, as I investigated, it turns out I really want control over the billing as well. I had heard horror stories of psychiatrists who got an office space, saw patients, accepted insurance, and then didn't get paid and thus had to close their practice. And so just from speaking with others, I learned more about what was, you know, the kind of best way to go. And so I just went for it. (laughs) That's fantastic. And with regards to planning uh, before your doors opened, what, what did planning look like for you? It was not a lot, actually. You'd be surprised how easy it is to set up your own private practice. I, had just graduated residency, actually, and I had planned to join a group. But with the pandemic, I found that there were too much of a dictatorship. They were trying uh, to really control my every step and every move. And I kind of serendipitously got in touch with an alumni who has his own uh, psychiatry private practice, telepsychiatry. And ended up setting a time to speak and he guided me through how he set it up. And that one conversation, granted it was, it was about a two hour conversation, but that one conversation was enough to get me started. And I just, I remember there was this one weekend where I knew I was just going to set it all up. And I was so determined and motivated. It's just one of those things where you see 
your dream right in front of you and you just want it. And so I knew that I could get it. I knew I had the time and I like didn't eat lunch. I just kept working on my website and um, setting up different forms. And, you know, it was very gratifying and fulfilling to be your own boss and to have your own business. Really. Um, I, I kept thinking about how long I've been a resident and a med student and other people have been in control of so many parts of my life, where I live, where I work, what my schedule is. And so it's, it was really refreshing to be able to think now I'm in charge. And so that's what really drove me um, to prepare to open up my practice. As physicians, especially we can relate to you know, our, our next steps are always uh, determined for us. You know, you might have a chance, you might have a choice of, you can go to this rotation or that rotation, but you pretty much just go from day one of medical school to day, you know, end of residency. So that's wonderful to hear that this has been your journey and that you've achieved your dream. Yes, absolutely. And I really want to expand on that uh, for a moment, if you don't mind. We must take back our power as physicians. We have invested so much time into our skills and our education that no one should be able to dictate how much we work, where we work, and how much we get paid. We are the the asset in this whole uh, system. And I think that we must allow ourselves to become empowered. And, you know, I've been doing this for two months, but I think it's just really energized me to to be more in charge of my life in in other ways too. So this is very important, I think. And hopefully I can inspire other people to do the same. (laughs) Absolutely. And that's a huge goal of this podcast and making sure that we're interviewing people who are doing direct care as well as direct primary care because the movement is not just related to primary care and it is so important. And you're so right that we you know, chose and were called to the profession of medicine for different reasons. But in at the end of the day, we are trained uh, to do our jobs and we do our jobs well. And we should, uh, you have no, you have no argument from me with regards to taking back our, you know, our profession, um, especially fighting for our profession, because we take better care of patients when we're not dictated to in terms of the type of medicine we practice. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. I'm so glad we agree on this. It's so important. I wanted to draw focus to the fact that you had specialized training in the needs of college students and the young adult population. Given that we are in this pandemic and with this pandemic putting unprecedented demands on college students and teenagers and middle schoolers and elementary school school kids, what types of issues are you seeing with regards to psychiatric diagnoses or psychiatric problems that you have been addressing in your practice? So you're absolutely right. The pandemic has been so hard for so many of us, but especially for, in my opinion, college age students, college campuses are closed, dorms aren't open, kids are still at home with their parents. And this is a time when they are scheduled and supposed to be exploring their own opinions and their own values and their own interests in college and personally, too. It's a great time for personal growth. And unfortunately, due to the pandemic, they're not getting the full 
scope of that, they're still under the watchful eye of their parents. Um, they're not able to fully engage with their peers the way they ex- have ex- expected. And that is really causing a lot of problems. Now, for all ages, it's, of course, a very difficult time in terms of everyone's mental health. People aren't able to go to the gym. They aren't able to socialize. They aren't able to do the things that brought their life a sense of joy, normalcy. Um, Working out is such a great treatment for anxiety and depression. Now, if you take that away, people's symptoms are coming up. And so there's a huge surge in need for mental health treatment. So that's definitely something I'm seeing in every age group. But this sense of just loss and sense of feeling lost and feeling, you know, just stunted is something I'm seeing in the college aged population, which is really unfortunate. I, I think back to my college days and they were so formative and so freeing and so, so wonderful. Granted, you know, I was a pre-med, so I wasn't as free as I think I was, but I, I really enjoyed learning to live on my own and um, exploring things that I wanted to do and how I wanted to manage my life. And the current 18 to 25 year olds can't do that. And so I find that really unfortunate and it's really affecting their mental health. As far as my specialized training in it, I, um, during residency, I had a six month rotation at a, at a college at Fresno State University where I held my own clinic and I kept a panel of patients and it was it was very educational and it was very interesting. And, um, you know, they weren't just mild cases. People have intense symptoms even at that age. So I found it very interesting, very gratifying. Um, and I, I just love that age group. I think it's such an important time to really explore your life, what you want, and to to set the stage for the next part of your life and maybe the rest of your life, too. For those direct care practices and direct primary care practices who are located especially near colleges and they might have college students on their panel. Do you have any guidance as to types of questions to open up a conversation about how college students are dealing with the pandemic? Yes, I think um, it's very important for all providers at this time to ask especially this population, but maybe everyone, kind of how they're coping with the pandemic. How did you used to cope? And are you still able to do those things? Likely not, because the things that helped us, socializing, exercise, traveling, you know, all these things have been taken from us. And I just think just accepting that this is a difficult time will give the patient permission and license to explore that further with their doctor. And so it just takes the, you know, one, one compassionate statement for them uh, to open up. In my opinion, it doesn't take too much. It can be very simple, but just the fact that someone's taking the time to ask about how they're coping, are they able to sleep well? Are they finding any joy in anything I think just that little bit is enough for them to open up. And then if the physician feels that this could be someone who could benefit from therapy, medication management, or seeing a psychiatrist, please um, send them, send them somewhere. Tell them, Hey, this is real. This is a real problem. Don't ignore this. Find some, someone to talk to or think about medication to help these symptoms. 
Now I want to I want to continue on that thought. If a physician were to speak with a patient, especially in the DPC model where time is not something that we're short on now, um, and they were to find a patient was in need of psychiatric help, uh, tell us about uh, specifically your practice. What would that look like if if a doctor were to reach out to you? So it's very simple. I manage my entire practice myself. So anytime someone calls me or emails me or sends me an inquiry on my website, it goes directly to me. There's no one else involved. And that gives me a lot of freedom and power to answer inquiries at different times of the day, even after hours, so-called after hours. Um, So someone could go to my website. My URL is the jazzy doc. My first name is Jasmine. So it's a play on words. And, you know, it's kind of a long story, but the jazzy doc became my nom de plume, kind of, and um, I used it as my URL for my website. Um, So they could just go to my website and they could uh, submit an inquiry and that goes straight to my email. And at that time I could either email back or call them back and uh, we could go from there. And when a patient establishes with you, how do they do visits with you? Uh, Video, over the phone, both? So the visit will be over video. I use DocSeeMe. So as soon as they have emailed me and we've decided that we are a good fit, we will, um, I will then send them a link to do a little bit of paperwork, medical history, et cetera, nothing too extensive. And then I send them a link to join me on DocSeeMe at our scheduled time. And then we do the visit over video. And what if a patient has a question with regards to um, a quick answer type question, uh, you know, can I just confirm my appointment for next time or or whatnot? Do you have texting available or is it primarily through email? It is primarily through email. Patients do text me, uh, which is fine. Uh, But I've, of course, given them uh, disclaimers that texting may not be totally private. You know, I, I don't have a secure messaging platform, which maybe is something to look into. But most people just email me um, if they have a question of that nature. Now, with regards to prescriptions, if a person is not on a prescription yet, and you're thinking that a prescription of whatever type might be appropriate for them, how do you manage that over telemedicine? Stay with us. We'll be right back. Your calls for more content have not fallen on deaf ears. I am so excited to announce the My DPC Story Patreon community. Delve into exclusive full-length interviews with pioneers like Dr. Niti Kapoor, our inaugural physician guest, and get further enlightening insights from our current season's doctors, starting with Dr. Harpreet Sui. Hear our guests share even more from their worst days to their best days and everything in between. Get access to this treasure trove of conversations and more by joining our My DPC Story community now. Check out the link in the show notes or go to patreon.com forward slash My DPC Story Fan. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash My DPC Story Fan. So I use an app called iPrescribe. 
and you are able to, you know, it's um, a process. They verify your identity um, to make sure it's you. And then you can send electronic prescriptions that way. Um, there's also an extra security step if you're sending over a controlled substance. So the Ryan Hate Act is kind of waived right now. So you can send controlled substances electronically um, without seeing the patient in person. Um, so that's that's been helpful in this pandemic time. I want to uh, shift things a little bit to the fact that you also um, mention on your website that you are attuned to, to cultural psychiatry. As a Filipina myself, yes. I just find that so fascinating because in addition to, um, you know, taking time to ask somebody about how they're dealing with the pandemic, um, being able to discuss cultural differences with regards to mental health is, is paramount in these times as well. So how does yes. your practice uh, incorporate cultural psychiatry? So when I was uh, in residency, there was a time when I was working on an inpatient psychiatric unit and there was a, um, a slew of Punjabi patients. And I have Punjabi heritage. Uh, for those who don't know, Punjab is a state in India. And the cultural implications in their case were so evident to me. And that made me think, hey, this is something. We need to talk about this. Um, and it was very, I think, in, you know, they even told me that it was helpful for them to talk to someone who understood that part of their, their being. And so I've just noticed that culture contributes to our beliefs, our lifestyle, you know, even our food choices, um, our values, our behaviors, and our thoughts as well. And that's so much of that is mental health. Our thoughts, feelings, and behaviors are all parts of our mental health. And so I became more interested in it. Um, I ended up writing up those patients' cases in a case series and presenting it at the APA um, in 2018, I believe. And it's been so eye-opening for me to ask a patient about their culture because then it becomes a point of, does this work for you? Does this not work for you? Are you allowing this part of your life to be too much or too little? Uh, there's, there's so much to discuss in terms of culture. And so I, you know, I, I really think it's valuable to ask a patient, especially during the pandemic, how they're handling it and what their culture suggests to do about their feelings and behaviors about the pandemic. So I think culture is very important. Um, it's our, it's who we, it's a part of who we are. And I think that's what we need to think about when we're treating someone in the mental health perspective and think about so many aspects of their care. In between visits, do you offer counseling? Do you work with counselors? I do offer uh, counseling. I do offer talk therapy. Um, patients really appreciate having one person doing the medications and the therapy. I am very judicious with medication. I think if something can be solved in, in a therapy way, let's try that. Um, if medication is more appropriate, let's go that way. And studies show that both together are the most effective. And that's how I want to practice. I want to give patients the most effective treatment possible. With that said, when it comes to um, not only counseling, but wellness, 
Um, what are some strategies that you use to help patients be accountable for their mental health and their wellness? See, it's a difficult, um, it's a difficult balance to strike because you want to suggest simple things that they can implement, but at the same time, you don't want to, you know, if someone's very depressed and their energy is low, you don't want them to feel even worse that they can't do something that I'm suggesting. So I try to introduce different wellness practices along the way, uh, depending on where the patient's at and where I think they can start making some lifestyle choices. Of course, you know, we all know basics of what those are, exercise, eating healthy, being outdoors, getting some sunshine, connecting with others, uh, engaging in our hobbies. These are all things that are, are simple, but for someone who's struggling with mental illness, it can be very hard to even do one of these things. So I try not to inundate the patient early on, but try to have them explore what they feel and where they think they're, they're struggling and then maybe offer a lifestyle or wellness um, suggestion at that time. Um, so it's, it's a fine balance I have found. Especially in a DPC model where you have the time to really get to know somebody, you really can develop that relationship um, as a close one from the, from the ground up. And then that patient might be more receptive to suggestions or just taking um, suggestions, not as criticisms, but that you actually right. care for them. So I, I definitely agree with you on that. With regards to your marketing, because you are a solo practitioner, how do you go about marketing your practice? I reach out to providers. I, when I first started, I told every single person I know <laughs> what I'm doing, uh, whether it's other residents, whether it's former attendings, um, friends, family friends, I told everybody. So that has been helpful. Um, I reached out to primary care providers, which has also been helpful, uh, therapists, but you know, it's, it's a work in progress. I, I've also put myself up on a couple websites like psychology today, but I think word of mouth is more powerful than, than websites collaborating with other physicians um, I think is, is great. And that's, that's how it's going so far. And my practice is small still. I'm, I'm not full by any means, uh, but I'm okay with that for now. <laughs> I think it's, you get on a rocky ground when you are rushing into things, um, especially if yeah. you're developing a practice for the first time. So I, I don't see that as a, as a downside to, to opening um, as a solo practitioner. And I definitely would say that in terms of word of mouth, it's probably one of the most powerful ways to get a referral, especially for psychiatry, because, you know, it's not something where you can just randomly search for a provider. I definitely use psychology today for my patients. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, if there's somebody who I know is, uh, is focused on, you know, like yourself, uh, college age students or female health or, mm -hmm. you know, a, a certain diagnosis, I will, will say, I, I would encourage you to seek this person's help. So I can definitely see how word of mouth um, is a great way to refer in yeah. psychiatry. What is the wait time uh, with regards to establishing care, especially now that you're not yet full? Um, what is the wait time like for your practice? It's great. I can do same day 
appointments usually. Uh, and if not, I can do next day for sure. I really love that when someone's really not well, I don't, I I'm, I can say, I can see you right away. I don't have to say I'm booked for three months, you know? So that has been really wonderful. Yeah. That wait time is so painful, especially in places that are lacking in psychiatric services. In our county, we have a very difficult time pairing people with mental health providers because a big thing is uh, insurance and the fact that mm-hmm. insurance is not taken in a lot of LMFT offices, et cetera. And it's, it's terrible that that that's the situation, not only in my county, but all over the nation. And I think right. that uh, people are realizing, especially nowadays, that your mental health is is key to the rest of your health. I, I wanted to ask, with regards to the future, do you mm-hmm. see yourself continuing only as a solo doc in the practice? Are you open to adding another doctor at some point? Where are you with your future plans? Hmm, that's a great question. I I haven't really thought about that. Um, <laughs> I I think there's value in having other people in the practice, but I, I don't know how necessary that would be. I am all about physicians empowering themselves, and so if a doctor says to me, "I want to join your practice," I would say, "Well, how about?" I give you the tools to start your own so you don't have to rely on me or my scheduling or anything. So I I would rather someone uh, be on their own and, you know, they can ask me questions along the way if, if they need to, but I'm all about physician empowerment. And um, I think we all need to just empower ourselves to be on our own and take charge of our, our practices but I'm, I'm open to it, I guess. <laughs> sure. And you have lots of time to decide, right? I have become a huge fan of podcasts. Ever since Sarah Koenig hosted the first season of Serial, I was hooked. Now, creating this podcast has become part of my daily life. While it is an exciting new hobby, I also see it as a privilege that I get to interview so many DPC and direct care doctors. If you are interested in starting a podcast, let me tell you a little bit about Anchor. First of all, it's free. There are creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Anchor will distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many more. You can make money from your podcast as well with no minimum listenership. It's basically everything you need to make a podcast all in one place. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. With regards to your website, you do feature videos. Can you tell us a little bit about those videos and uh, how you um, how you strategically plan those videos to be accessible uh, to the public? Yeah, that's a great question. So I, I actually didn't plan this, but what happened was in residency during my second year, I was trying to do a outreach project in the hospital. Um, aside from my clinical duties, I wanted to create like an educational program for patients who came in to educate them about mental health. And when I met with the powers that were there in the hospital, uh, they said to me, you know, Dr. Singh, we appreciate this, but this is not going to happen. However, we have a TV show that we're connected to in local Fresno, Central Valley um, 
broadcasting. And we think you'd be great for that. Would you be interested? And my jaw dropped and I couldn't believe it that I was, you know, hearing about such a cool opportunity. And I was just a second year resident at that time. So I connected with the channel KSEE 24 and they had me on um, in December of my second year residency. And I remember it was managing holiday anxiety. That was my first segment. And I didn't tell anybody about it because I didn't know how it was going to go. Um, only my parents and my sister knew that this was happening. Oh, and my program director, of course, um, and my attending who permitted me to go to the studio, um, the station studio to do this uh, segment in the late afternoon. So I knew that uh, it was going to be on TV and I recorded it. And later when I watched it, I thought, well, I want this, you know, I want my, my family to see this. I want my friends to see it. Uh, my program director wanted to see it. So I put it on YouTube and that became the link that I circulated through my family and friends. And um, the studio liked it. My, my program director liked it. And I'm really grateful that he permitted me to do this because it became such a great opportunity. And for until now, I'm, I'm still going um, I'm still going on television uh, for that channel and others. So since then, I've done 15 or 20 television segments for KSEE, uh, as well as NBC, CBS uh, in the Central Valley. I've been on an international uh, Punjabi channel um, in terms of another television segment. I've been on NPR. I've been on various podcasts. And of course, this one as well. Uh, I've been on the radio um, I've been written about and I've written in magazines uh, and my media presence has, has really grown since then. But I really didn't plan for those things to be available to future patients. I just wanted um, people to have access to, to the work I was doing um, and hopefully it would help them. I wanted the tips that I thought of that were applicable to my segments. I wanted as many people on the planet as I could to, to get that help. So I, I've been putting YouTube videos up for, you know, three, almost three years now. And it's just, I also thought this would be great to add to my website. So that's how that came about, really. <laughs> Long story, but that's how, that's how that happened. How refreshing, though, because, you know, to hear that you have had an increasing media presence to talk about mental health. That is so refreshing. That affects everybody. And it's not, you know, uh, numbers of COVID uh, in whatever county you're living in. That's important as well. But at the same time, um, drawing attention specifically to mental health, that is so refreshing to hear that there has been a call for that and that you've been able to participate in that movement as well. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, I'm really grateful to, to the channels. Um, both television, radio, podcast, um, that they're, interest, they're interested in these issues and talking about it and, and giving me that opportunity, but also my program director. Um, I, I felt so supported that he allowed me to work it into my schedule. And that's, I think that's unheard of for a resident to be able to do that. So um, I'm just, I'm very grateful uh, that I was allowed to even do this and, and get those opportunities if a physician were needing uh, not only mental health resources for patients, but also for themselves, 
Are there uh, specific uh, resources that you would direct a physician to that you personally like? I would direct a physician to a psychiatrist, a therapist, and that they must keep up with their mental health. Doctors suffer from depression at at the highest degree. We're the most depressed uh, profession. Women physicians have a 20, almost 20% chance of being depressed. These numbers are so high. I just can't even tell you. And another fact I read was that doctors have a nine times increased chance of killing themselves compared to the general population. And these, these numbers are staggering, right? But I think it points to a deeper issue that physicians focus so much on helping others and healing others that they put themselves last. And they're just, you know, they're not strangers to sacrifice so many years of education, uh, schedule, sleep, food, (laughs) so many things we've sacrificed to get to where we are. Uh, But we can't let our health be sacrificed. And so anything that they can fit in um, to start with is so essential. Do they want to start with a therapist? Great, go for that. Do you want to see a psychiatrist and approach it through medication or medication plus therapy from a psychiatrist? Do that. Um, Do you need to reduce the amount of work you're doing? I mean, of course, during a pandemic, that would be very hard to do. Uh, But it's something to think about. We have to take care of ourselves because, like I said, we are an asset and the system, medical system needs us to be at our best so we can save other people. So I, um, you know, I I would be happy to help any physician who, who wants to be seen. I'll work with your schedule. We could do late appointments, anything that you need. Um, This is a, a cause that's very dear to me. I come from a family of physicians. And so... I I completely understand the schedule limitations, but if you're willing uh, to seek care, I can speak for myself and say that I will help you. So important. And thank you so much for for offering and for sharing that to other uh, people who might not know what to do in terms of taking that next step. Because as we all know, as physicians, it's not the easiest thing to become a patient yourself. Right. Yeah. Right. It's very... Uh, it really injures us. But I read this great quote um, a few years ago. A physician had uh, written in a magazine. I, while I was in residency in Fresno, this magazine, physician magazine, had come to our clinic. And for some reason, I read this article and it ended. Um, it was a physician encouraging physicians to seek medical care. And the line that has stuck with me from that article is, do not commit malpractice against yourself. And I thought that was so powerful that, you know, we think about malpractice, but only for other patients, not towards ourselves, but don't do that. Think of yourself as a human being and a patient as well. Why, why would you be any different? So that, that sentence sometimes echoes in, in my, in my head. Don't commit malpractice against yourself. That's a wonderful quote for people who are seeking and embarking on or have been in a direct care or direct primary care model. They've had the time to really, Mm -hmm. or to do a personal check-in and to, uh, you know, reevaluate how am I living my life? How am I spending time with family? How am I spending time taking care of myself? Um, In physician groups who are doing a direct care or direct primary care model, uh, you see 
people talking about that a lot more than I see RVU doctors talking about that. Um, and mm-hmm. it's, it's very interesting because it just goes along with the fact that, you know, we've been in this model of, and this is the next thing you do. And this is the next thing, thing you do. And that control <laughs> that you speak of, it's definitely not, not familiar ground for a lot of people unless they leave the insurance driven system. Right. Absolutely. And what you just said that this is the next step and this is the next step it's dictated to us and taking away someone's personal power like that, it puts them, you know, in a depressive position that they don't have control over their life, that they don't have a say in, in so many important parts of their life. That's, that's terrible. That's not fair. And so we have the chance now after, you know, I feel that after residency, now I have finally the chance to discuss how I want my life to go, how I want my schedule to go, what I'm willing to do and what I'm not willing to do. And if that allows people to then focus on their mental health and wellness, then please do so because you're important. You're, you're important to the country during this pandemic, you're important to your family. And please, you know, don't wait until it's too late to take care of yourself. On that note, can you reiterate the best way to get a hold of you so that if people are ready with their pens and papers or their notepads on their phone, they can write down your website? Yes, absolutely. So my URL is thejazzydoc.com, T-H-E-J-A-Z-Z-Y-D-O-C.com. And you can submit an inquiry there and it'll go straight to me. It's been so inspiring talking with you and reassuring as well. Again, just to um, get a chance to talk with someone who's doing direct mental health care is absolutely fantastic. And it's, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. I've, I've had so much fun and the pleasure is entirely mine. Thank you for having me. Next week, look forward to hearing from Dr. Amber Beckenhauer of the Healthy Human DPC. Until then, this is Marielle Conception. For more information on this episode and much more, please visit mydpcstory.com.